Welcome to the 397th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome educational psychology professor Kevin Coakley, who's the co-author of a new article, The COVID-19 Racial Injustice Syndemic and Mental Health Among Black Americans. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 12th, 2022, there are 5,510,327 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Longtime Civil Rights Activist Mel Reeves Dies of Complications from COVID-19. This was written by Randy First and Abby Simons and appeared in the Minneapolis Star Tribune January 6, 2022. Mel Reeves, a Minneapolis civil rights activist and journalist who spent decades fighting for social justice, has died from complications of COVID-19. Reeves' death was announced by the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder, a longtime Black weekly newspaper where Reeves served as community editor and frequently wrote front-page articles. Reeves, age 64, was a fixture at protests and civic events where he was an outspoken advocate for marginalized communities. He was open about his battle with COVID-19, posting photos of himself in the hospital. News of Reeves' death was immediately met with widespread online tributes. Mel was a revolutionary, said Pastor Brian Heron of Zion Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where Reeves once served as part of the church's ministerial staff. He was a seeker of justice, not just social justice, but economic and social justice, and he cared deeply about developing the activism of young people. He never backed down. He fought for what is right, said Michelle Gross, president of Communities United Against Police Brutality. He was a true freedom fighter, she said. Reeves worked at the Spokesman Recorder in the 1980s, returning about a decade ago, said Tracy Williams Dillard, the newspaper's publisher and owner. As an African-American, people were more comfortable talking to him than to the mainstream media, she said. They recognized the story would be in their voice and recorded accurately. Reeves covered the police killings of Philando Castile in Falcon Heights and George Floyd in Minneapolis and wrote his final piece, a recap of 2021, which he tapped out on his cell phone from his bed at Hennepin County Medical Center. 2021 was supposed to be a rebound from the devastating and stunning losses of the previous year, he wrote. Instead, 2021 felt more like the weaker sister of 2020. We were only days into this year when Black folks were startled to see a Black officer empowered to carry out the will of the state, running from a group of white men storming the nation's capital, he wrote. The week before he died, Reeves gave an interview to WCCO-TV about the ravages of the virus and urged people to get vaccinated. In the interview, Reeves said he wasn't vaccinated because of an issue with blood clots. In an oral history provided for the Minneapolis Interview Project, Reeves said he was born the youngest of 13 children in Miami, Florida, and was adopted when he was a year old. He grew up a self-described bookworm. Wade Hampton, one of his closest friends, said Reeves told him he was bullied as a youth and no one defended him. He internalized that, said Hampton, and devoted his life to standing up for others. I made up my mind I was not I made up my mind I was going to do all I could to make a better world and stand up for those who couldn't stand up for themselves, he wrote in a New Year's post on Facebook. Reeves went to Northwestern College, a Christian college in Orange City, Iowa where he met Hampton and, after graduation, moved to Minneapolis, where he attended Bethel Seminary. He was married for about three years 
and father to son named Kellen. Kellen Reeves of Waukegan, Illinois, said his father told him he didn't choose jobs based on the salary he would earn, but on whether it would allow him to have time to do community work. He said that his father took him to many rallies and community events, frequently ones that his father was organizing and leading. I often joke that I grew up on the back of a truck with a bullhorn in my hand, Kellen said. Later, as a grandfather, Mel would play with his grandchildren, wrestling with them on the floor, taking them to go for football games or Chicago White Sox baseball games. Reverend Jerry McAfee of New Salem Baptist Church said he first met Reeves at a rally against police brutality more than 30 years ago. He found himself in sharp disagreement over the agenda with Reeves and some of his friends. We went to the side and had a discussion and discovered that we had more in common than what we had against each other. It led to a lifetime of collaboration. Mel was a closet preacher, McAfee said. He was a spiritual guy. He said a passage from the Bible aptly described Reeves. Greater love has no man this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Monique Colors Doty, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Minnesota, recalled she first met Reeves at a 2015 Black Lives Matter protest at the Minnesota State Fair. He was selfless, she said. He used to say, your struggle is my struggle. Chad Turner, who organized the protest, said Reeves was both a friend and mentor. Mel would say, justice, then peace, Turner recalled. No one is going to fill his shoes. Kenya McKnight Ahad, a social justice activist, got to know Reeves in 2009 when she ran for city council. In the 20 days that he was in the hospital, she became his contact with the doctors and nurses caring for him. He appreciated the staff at HCMC, she says. Reeves is survived by his son, Kellen, and five grandchildren. Obituary of civil rights activist Mel Reeves, who's died January 6th of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest to you, Kevin Coakley. Kevin Coakley, PhD, holds the Oscar and Anne Mozzi Regents Professorship for Educational Research and Development in the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin. A fellow of the University of Texas System and University of Texas Academy of Distinguished Teachers, Chair of the Department of Educational Psychology, Professor of Educational Psychology and African and African Diaspora Studies, and the past director of the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis. He holds the title of Distinguished Psychologist and received the scholarship award from the Association of Black Psychologists. He's written several op-eds in major media outlets on topics such as Black's irrational mistrust of police, the aftermath of Ferguson, police and race relations, racism and white supremacy, the use of school vouchers and racial disparities in school discipline. His research has been recognized in media outlets, including the New York Times, USA Today, and Inside Higher Education. Kevin Coakley, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and, and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. So um, I am calling from capital of Texas, Austin, Texas. And we are now in um, stage five, uh, which is the highest stage of um, the the pandemic. Um, I think we just reached stage five, maybe last week, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So like many places in the country, things are not great. So I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this of this time and of course i'm sure you have a lot but i wonder is there some particular memory of this era that really resonates with you you know i don't i was thinking about that question um and you know i don't know that there's like any one specific memory um uh, what i what i can say is that i think that the the memories of prominent people, you know, who have succumbed to the, the um, to COVID, uh, have they've all left lingering, um, I think, um, a lingering impact on me. Um, I can tell you that 
when my, um, I, you know, I found out um, that members of my family had COVID. Um, that was scary. And, and that was much earlier on. Um, it was before, you know, vaccines were um, widely accessible. And so, you know, my family was not at that time um, vaccinated. So it was, you know, really scary. I remember being on the phone with uh, several family members and, um, you know, my mom offering, my mom and dad offering prayer for, for one of my siblings because um, they just, just didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. And so, yeah, I guess now as I'm talking out loud, that's probably a, a pretty significant memory. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's um, sort of talking about that, those two periods of it, you know, now people facing infections who have vaccination, that's scary enough. But I mean, to think back to that time when those, that wave of virus was, you know, coming through for a long time, the whole first year and then some in which people had no protection at all. Um, you know, they almost seem like two different pandemics to me in that, in that regard. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, we've been at this so long now. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly does. And, you know, I would say now, even though, you know, the, you know, we have this new variant, the Omicron variant, um, and the, the rates are sky high, it, at least for me, it feels a little bit less scary, um, just because of the accessibility now of vaccines and, you know, you know, so many people being vaccinated and boosted, um, though certainly not enough, but it, it feels a little less scary than before. And we're going to talk about the pandemic and talk about your this new amazing new research that you've been working on. But I'd like to lay a little of the um, sort of groundwork first and find out a little bit more about your research before 2020. You know, what were the, the kind of key questions that you've been working with uh, in the working on in the years leading up to the pandemic in your research? Well, so you know, I'm a you know, a counselor psychologist by training, and I am firmly um, sort of within the black psychology tradition. Um, so almost all of my research has focused on the experience of, of, of people of African descent. Um, I have focused a lot on, on educational issues. Um, I am in the Department um, of Educational Psychology, I'm where, as you mentioned, I am the chair um, located within the College of Education. And so I, for a long time, I've been interested in issues of academic achievement of, of African-American students. And so much of my earlier work focused on factors that impact the achievement of African-American students. Um, I was interested in issues related to identity, motivation, um, academic motivation specifically, um, academic self-concept, um, the quality of um, interactions between students and um, their professors. So that characterized much of my earlier research. Um, I then became, you know, interested in looking at research involving um, mental health um, and wanting to see what were some of the factors that negatively impacted uh, mental health outcomes. And as I began to do more of that research, um, I would say probably about maybe I guess eight years ago now, um, I started to do work on what has been referred to as the imposter phenomenon. And and that's really animated my program of research um, a great deal. So the imposter phenomenon, for those who might not be familiar with the concept, is the idea of that individuals who are incredibly, you know, sort of bright, competent, successful, nevertheless feel like they are intellectually fraudulent. They feel like they are fooling people and that they aren't nearly as as competent um, as they come across. And so I have been really fascinated with, with this concept and I've started to do, or I shouldn't say started to do, I've been doing work now for a few years, um, examining very closely um, the idea of the imposter phenomenon, especially among students of color, um, and in particularly, you know, African American students, and so uh, I'm really interested in whether the imposter phenomenon, um, if it if it looks a little bit differently um, amongst um, people of color, students of color in particular, which I think it does. I think it takes on a more racialized form than it does, um, say, with with white folks. And so, so this is sort of you know the work that I have um, been doing. The imposter phenomenon manifests itself um, it, with 
stress symptoms? Is it, is it you know, understood as a, a sort of mental health issue predominantly? Or, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you take stock of it? How do you measure it? Well, the, well, we, we measure it through um, a 20-item scale called the Clancy and Posse Phenomenon Scale, mm-hmm. um, which has been around since, um, the, I believe, the 70s. And, and what we do is we administer the scale and we administer mental health um, inventory. So I, I, I tend to like um, this measure called the mental health inventory, which allows you to assess symptoms related to anxiety and depression. And what you find consistently, and not only my research, but others who have done this research, is that higher levels of feeling like an imposter are linked to higher feelings of anxiety and depression. It's a very common finding. So it, it robs people of of their joy, it sounds like. I mean, if, if particularly people who have accomplished great things. It certainly does. Um, well, thanks for talking about that. and. and uh, let's talk a little bit about 2020. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you know, that, that winter and spring of 2020, that sort of really violent season, uh, with the murders of Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. You know, I, w- I want to talk with you about that, but I want to talk with you first about it sort of as a researcher and as a teacher. You know, and and how you sort of think about that violence in that period of time in terms of the kind of research questions that you work on and, and how you how you approach that period of time as a teacher. And, I, and we're going to talk about how that comes together with the pandemic, too, of course, with this endemic concept. But I wonder just to sort of talk about that really terrible few months in terms of racial violence in America. How were you making sense of it and how were you helping others make sense of it? <clears throat> well, for me, it it was among the most challenging periods of, of my academic career because I, along with, I think, several, you know, many other um, black psychologists found ourselves um, in high demand uh, because people wanted to know you know, you know, just, just sort of like what you're asking, like, you know, how were we sort of responding and asking us to sort of speak almost on behalf of black people about the impact that this was having psychologically um, on, on black folks. And so I, I spent a lot of time um, doing, you know, like talking to various entities um, about the impact. And, and, and in terms of my research, it, it didn't impact my my traditional academic research and um, that that pretty much stayed the same but it greatly impacted my public scholarship um and, you know of course my public scholarship i mean you know sort of writing for the public you know not writing for you know peer-reviewed academic journals but writing for um you know like writing opinion pieces it greatly impacted that uh, if you look at <clears throat> that period of time you'll see that um i you know wrote several pieces um you know, just addressing the this this sort of grappling with race um, in this country, you know, that, you know, and I had certainly written about that before um, the deaths and murders of Arbery and Taylor and Floyd, but it it increased, I think, um, after their, their, their deaths. I can only imagine it must have been every day for you and in, in, with interviews and writing and it. Yes, it was it was crazy. That that period of activism that that followed and and you know the way this is characterized even is is sometimes it's we should talk accurately about it. It's not like there wasn't a wave of activism before that. It's not like right. these incidents were new and came out of nowhere. Right. But it was one of these moments in American history which are too few in which there does seem to be, because of the confluence of events, the the capture on video, many other elements, and probably the pandemic as well, to a certain extent, there was a consciousness raising a, among a broader swath of Americans, including white Americans and including the mainstream media mm-hmm. and the political class. And that doesn't often happen, that right. those things line up. Were you surprised by that? in that moment and and what the black lives matter sort of protest moment 
afforded because it seemed to be something new? You know, I, I, I was a little surprised. Um, you know, when you turned on the TV and you saw all of these um, protests and, 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 and Black Lives Matter was so prominently um, featured in, in these protests. And, and when you looked at the, really the, the, the rainbow of colors of, of people who were involved, because it wasn't, as you sort of alluded to, it wasn't just, you know, black people. Um, it was truly a multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multicultural coalition of people who were, who, who were sick and tired of sort of what has been going on in this country or around um, police violence and who, who banded together to, you know, express their, you know, their, their concerns. And so I, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what surprised me was just the sheer size and scope of the protest and the fact that it was, they were, the protests were not relegated to just the United States. This was really right. a worldwide and it's, and it has since now been sort of said that these that this was probably the largest, you know, sort of protest of its kind in history. And that's saying something. And the, the statues toppling in across the UK, across Europe and South America, it seemed to crystallize a moment. Do you think that's connected to the pandemic in some ways, either directly or indirectly? <clears throat> I think, you know, certainly there, you know, maybe, a, you know, indirect, connection may, maybe even direct um i remember you know people asking that question and you know there was a lot of i think pent up anxieties i mean you know people weren't you know you know it was it was during that time you know when you know people really weren't sort of going out and, and doing things and we you know there were still um you know sort of the, the expectation that people would not you know sort of go outside or, or go to places and and I think people were just tired of being cooped up. And so, so it was, it was probably a perfect confluence of, of, of events, you know, where people were already feeling very, you know, sort of, you know, this pent up frustration and, and, and anxieties and energy about, about COVID. And then, you know, you have this situation where, you know, Arbery and Taylor and Floyd, you know, are killed or, and murdered. And then, and so I think it was just a perfect, you know, storm so that it resulted in, I, I think that the, that the protests probably were even more amplified because of people's already existing frustrations around COVID. I don't know if this is true for you. It certainly was for me. That was the first time I had seen a group of people since the pandemic started was when a march literally went past my house and we, you know, joined in. And it's, it's like, it was, as you described, like we had been inside, literally. And then these marches were coming to people's front doorstep mm -hmm. uh, across America. But putting those two together is going to take longer for us, I guess. We're going to need to, you know, talk to a lot of people about about that. But I remember having a great conversation with a physician named Peter Chin Hong, who's an emergency room doctor in San Francisco. And he was encouraging his students to go out to Black Lives Matters protest. And he was criticized for that. And I don't know if you remember this this sort of moment, but there was a kind of a criticism of public health officials and doctors who were encouraging and giving advice for people how to protest safely in the middle of a pandemic. And his response was, um, "Racism is a is a public health indicator. Ra you you can't people are protesting about these murders, but they're also protesting about health, and the violence in these communities is more than just." Uh, these individual murders, it's it's structural. So to him, there was no problem at all in supporting mm -hmm. it. He was supporting it as a physician. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm really, really glad to hear that. Um, and he's absolutely right. I mean, racism is a public health crisis. I mean, and and the sooner that people, you know, accept that, the, um, the better it will be. Um, but no, it, it absolutely is. And I think that that's you know part of why people started to link um sort of the health um sort of disparities that you see amongst you know different marginalized communities of color with you know what's going on in society particularly around 
um, racism and discrimination. Remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to educational psychologist Dr. Kevin Coakley today. And I want to talk about your most recent article, Kevin, and I'm just going to um, give the full title here. The article appears in Community Psychology, and the title is The COVID 19 Racial Injustice Syndemic and Mental Health Among Black Americans The Roles of General and Race Related COVID Worry, Cultural Mistrust and perceived discrimination. And you're, um, you are, there's a large team of researchers here, including Nolan Kruger, Suzanne Cunningham, Kathleen Burlew, Shana Hall, Kyosha Harris, Stephanie Castellan, and Carly Coleman, and probably other research assistants and others and involved with it. It's a, it's a huge undertaking. And I, I want to start, um, so I want to hear all about it, but I want to start actually just with the term syndemic. Uh, because it was a new one for me. I did not know that term before 2020. And I wonder if you could explain it. <clears throat> yes, it, it was it was a new term for me as well. I I was not familiar with the term prior to getting involved in this research. And it's, it's, it's a term that is, as I understand it, you know, pretty well known in the area of public health. And, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist, but I mean, I haven't necessarily been in the world of public health. But syndemic refers to the cumulative effect of two or more concurrent epidemics or disease clusters. So, so the idea is that that when you have um, these um, sort of singularly harmful and impactful um, epidemic events, that alone they are certainly very harmful. But then, when you combine them in the presence of other singularly harmful epidemics, that there's a combined cumulative effect, and that term is referred to as a syndemic. So with that concept in hand, then that seems to be really appropriate to be thinking about you know, what we were just talking about, that, that wave of violence in 2020, and then the accumulated structural violence in African-American communities, and then the pandemic. And so the piece it has a number of different hypotheses that you take on, but maybe before we get to that, can you say a little bit about how it came about, how you got such a big team together, how you collected the data? Um, yeah, so I, it's you know interesting story. Um, there, there was a, a, a discussion that took place, um, you know, among the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, uh, National Urban League. Uh, and some other entities where they were interested in conducting um, a needs assessment with various um, communities of color, uh, because as we've you know, long known that communities of color have been disproportionately impacted um, by COVID. And so the, you know, certain um, sort of racial and ethnic minority uh, psychological associations were involved or, or or asked to be involved in this. So, you know, I'm a member of the Association of Black Psychologists. You had the Asian American Psychological Association. Um, you had the National Latinx Psychological Association, and um, and you had the association. You know, so and you had rep um, association representing um, the Native Indigenous peoples also involved. Um, the Society of Indian Psychologists, and so basically, these um, ethnic minority psychological associations were asked to. Um, participate in the gathering of data um, that would shed light on the impact of COVID on their respective communities. Now, I, I was initially part of um, a small group that was going to evaluate um, basically people who wanted to be involved in collect, you know, this research. And I was going to help sort of choose the researchers. Um, and then as I became more familiar with the project, and at the time I was the director of a policy institute, the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis, I realized that, hey, I could actually do this research, and I have a strong team of, of researchers. And so I, it's, you know, I 
um, recused myself from the evaluation of, of the researchers who were submitting proposals and became, you know, you know, someone who was considered. And so I was, you know, ended up being chosen as one of the, you know, researchers who would be involved in this project. And and what was so cool about it, as you sort of, you know, mentioned, was that we were going to have access to so much data, to such a large data set. Like, you know, if you look at the research that I've published prior to that, I've never had, you know, you know, a study with as many um, participants as we were able to get here. And, and that's because there was, you know, funding attached and the funding allowed us to get access to, to much more data than we would have been able to get access to otherwise. So we ended up getting, you know, a sample of, of almost 2,500 um, black adults, which, you know, it's, it's, you know, pretty, you know, a pretty good size sample. Um, and we, we collected data from, um, I don't know if your, your listeners um, would be familiar with this, from a, what's called a Qualtrics panel database. Um, and so essentially individuals um, who are interested in getting paid to participate in research, make themselves available and, or, or, or give their names to this um, um, database. And they will be called when some research is being conducted that, you know, falls along in the area that they would be interested in participating in. So, so we got access to that, um, that data. Um, we, we were very intentional about um, where the participants were coming from because we, we wanted to, to get participants who were in areas where the COVID rates were incredibly high, particularly at, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, we wanted to identify COVID hotspots and those hotspots at that time included um, Michigan, Maryland, the Mississippi Delta, Texas. Um, there were certain places in um, California, the district of Columbia. And we were also, you know, we wanted to make sure that we had a high concentration, obviously of black folks, and we also wanted to make sure that we had um, diversity in terms of the the, the places that we were um, getting data from. So we wanted metropolitan urban areas like Los Angeles and Houston and New Orleans. We wanted mid-sized um, cities like um, Detroit and New Orleans um, and D.C. And we also wanted rural areas, particularly rural areas from Louisiana, the Mississippi Delta, um, because, again, we just we didn't want to have, you know, we wanted to have a diversity of, of, of um, participants and that's what we did so early on in the in the piece you write and i'm quoting here together the COVID 19 and racial injustice syndemic has exacerbated the mental health toll on black americans during the pandemic depression and anxiety surged among all people but disproportionately so among black people the synergistic effects you write include impacts on social determinants of health such as housing stability job security and food security and and so that's the that's what's at stake in, in trying to understand this connection. And so there there's so many variables there uh, to try to account for. And I, I want to maybe sort of you can talk me through it one by one. You had three main hypotheses that you were you were testing here. And, and the first one had to do with COVID and police violence and whether or not police violence concerns would be correlated with how it would be correlated with with COVID, what do, what were you looking for there specifically, and what did you find? Well, so that hypothesis goes hand in hand with the syndemic idea. You know, we we wanted we wanted to examine whether black folks' concerns about COVID, and and there were certainly you know a lot of concerns that that they had. We wanted to see if these concerns were in any way related to concerns that they would have about police violence. Um, and to my knowledge, there had not been any research conducted that actually linked empirically those those sets of concerns. And so so that that was the first hypothesis. And in fact, we found that individuals who perceived um, a greater threat of COVID, so their concerns about threat um, COVID uh, were were high we found that they also tended to perceive police violence against black people as very serious. And in addition, they also tended to report more symptoms of depression and anxiety. So we were able to sort of show empirically that concerns about COVID uh, were linked to concerns about police violence, 
uh, and that these were linked also to higher symptoms of depression and anxiety. So, to, I mean, that's an important finding. It, to me, it sort of goes two different directions also. One is just the correlation between concern about COVID and concern about police violence might indicate that uh, how people will be seeking more information, whether or not they're willing to seek um, treatment and in what way, what times of day or night they might be willing to to go out for medical intervention. I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrapped up just in that correlation, but then you add on the additional correlation mm -hmm. that those concerns correlated also indicates that people are going to be dealing with stress and anxiety, which itself is an indicator of a greater likelihood of having COVID. So it's a, it's a, it's the opposite of a virtuous circle, whatever that is. It's a malignant yeah. circle tying these things together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and we really just wanted to, to be able to, to empirically document that these, these, events, these horrible, you know, sort of events that would appear on the surface to be unconnected and unrelated to each other, in fact, are related in as much as concerns that black people have about them are related. The um, second one, the second major hypothesis, um, and I know this is one that I, I think you worked on, um, you already had worked on and an area of great interest for you personally is around cultural mistrust and vaccination status. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? This has been covered a lot in the news media. I haven't been always too too crazy about the coverage, frankly. So I'm really interested to hear your take. Yeah, on well, I haven't been crazy about the coverage either, um, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to make sure that we examined it. So this, it, let me provide a little context. Um, you know, earlier on, in the, in the pandemic, there was a lot of media coverage, um, you know, examining why, you know, black people in particular, although it wasn't certainly only black people, but why black people in particular um, were vaccine hesitant, you know, why they were not going in large numbers to get vaccinated. And, 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 and the number one reason that you heard was um, Tuskegee, concerns of, you know, linking back to the Tuskegee experiment. And, you know, again, you know, the, the experiment where black men who had syphilis um, were were not treated when there was treatment available um, so that the government could study the effects of syphilis. And so the, the so the, the the media narrative was that black people were not getting vaccinated because of, of their understanding of the history of the Tuskegee experiment and that sort of general sort of distrust of the medical um, field. Well, you know, that certainly, you know, seemed plausible, but the problem was that there was not a shred of data to support it. Um, it was all sort of conjecture, really. And so I, and I'm sure others, but, you know, you know, I wanted to make sure that we had an ability to to actually have data to see if, in fact, issues of mistrust were linked to vaccination status. So that's so that's the context, and so that's what we did. We we had um, you know in in the in the survey that we gave out to individuals, you know, we had an item that you know asked about their vaccination status and you know whether so. In other words, you know, in other words, you know whether you know individuals. Uh, were vaccinated, so it was basically four four categories: uh, individuals who who weren't vaccinated but they planned on getting vaccinated, individuals who weren't vaccinated and they had no plans on getting vaccinated, individuals who had who were vaccinated and had received one shot, and individuals who were vaccinated and had received two shots. So those were like four different groups of people, and we wanted to see if there were any differences between those four groups of people in terms of their level of cultural mistrust. Now, for those who, I mean. The, the term itself is probably intuitive, um, but in 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 black psychology, which is where the the phrase emerges from, cultural mistrust is is the idea um, that black folks have historically and contemporarily have had longstanding, profound mistrust toward institutions, um, towards really sort of institutions that are sort of perceived to be you know, sort of white uh, that are, you know, because of our, our history of racism in this country, there's just been this, this pervasive, you know, 
perpetual pervasive mistrust of white dominated institutions. Um, and, and that would include, you know, uh, medicine. Um, it would include education. It would include um, the law enforcement, et cetera. And it, it, is, it is a very um, popular and powerful psychological construct that is, is present among many black people. So, so we wanted to see if the differences of vaccination status, um, if there were differences in vaccination status um, based on different levels of culture mistrust. And so we, we did that analysis and um, I won't go through all the, the, the nuances, uh, the minutia related to the analysis, but what we found was that in fact, um, in non-vaccinated individuals who did not plan to get back to get get the vaccine or who plan to get the vaccine um, reported significantly higher culture mistrust than those individuals who were vaccinated. Um, and that was an important mm -hmm. finding because finally mm -hmm. we have empirical data that supports the narrative that people believed was happening, but that had not been able to sort of, you know, prove. I have, thank you for going through that in such detail. I have so many questions about that. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm glad that you established this empirical basis for it because um, I don't think there's anything to dispute about the narrative of things like Tuskegee and many other examples where African-Americans were subject to medical experimentation without their consent or the denial of medical care. I mean, I have no doubt that those things factor into a psychological uh, historical weight. But I felt like a lot of times in news media coverage, that was like there was a paragraph in the news media that said and it would be like the paragraph about Tuskegee and therefore everything is explained. And I was not satisfied with that. Well, and, and nor should you have been satisfied with it because there's, there's actually there's, there's more to the, to the story. And, and so I, I will share a, an, an anecdotal caveat um, regarding Tuskegee. So so when you were seeing when we were seeing all of these references to Tuskegee um, in the media relating and trying to link that to vaccination status, I remember having a conversation with my mother and, you know, my mom is, um, you know, in her mid seventies, she would kill me if I ever gave her eggs, you know, and I sort of like her attitude around um, vaccination status. And so I, and because of what was being said about Tuskegee, I remember sort of saying to her mom, you know, and she, at the time she wasn't vaccinated. And I said, mm -hmm. mom, are you not vaccinated because of, um, you know, concerns about, uh, you know, the Tuskegee experiment? And my mom was like, Tuskegee experiment? Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, it's Tuskegee experiment. And she was like, I was like, have you heard of the Tuskegee experiment? And she said, mm, I've heard of the Tuskegee I'm not familiar at all with the Tuskegee experiment. And I and I thought to myself, hmm, now this is interesting. Now this is, you know, an end of one. So, you know, you certainly I couldn't, you know, necessarily to that, but and being a researcher, we know about Tuskegee. You can complete an IRB without there being, you know, you cannot complete institutional review board sort of proposal for for those who not, may not be familiar without there being reference to, you know, sort of some of the bad research that's been done in the past, specifically the Tuskegee experiment. And so those who are who are the academy we know generally what the test experiment is and assume that this knowledge is common knowledge but my mom was not familiar with it and so then i i created more, more i said well mom if you're you're around getting the vaccine is related to about the test and what is it you know what she said to me mm. she said to me it was because of donald trump she was not going to trust anything that wow. that was being promoted by his administration because she didn't trust him. And, it, and, and she said she, it was only after Anthony Fauci started to speak more about it 
that she became more comfortable with it. And then she allowed herself eventually to get vaccinated. But it wasn't because of Trump. It was because of Fauci. That, what an illuminating story. And I, and I appreciate you sharing it. And it's, um, and it's, it makes me think that to some extent, I mean, of course it underlines the importance of this, of this research that you're doing, but also, um, it kind of speaks to the, just, I don't know how to just say this in a, just a lack of African-American history that's, that's being taught out there. So that one example from the past sort of stands in for an appropriate grievance, but I think probably you're right, but maybe a lot of times the first, for many Americans, black and white, first time they ever heard of the Tuskegee experiments was in the fall of 2020 when newspapers started writing about it as a reason that that you're vaccine hesitant for this thing about your history that hasn't really ever been taught much before. I mean, how many of us were taught about the Tuskegee experiment? It's not taught in public school. Maybe it is now. I certainly wasn't when I was in school. I, I wasn't taught about it. I, I only know about it because you know, I, I, you know, I have a PhD and, and because I was doing research and you had to learn about the Tuskegee experiment, sure. um, in order to sort of conduct research, but I wasn't, I don't recall ever being taught about it in school. I think that story also is an important one because there was, there was an intimation in some of the news coverage as well. And some things I heard from public health officials that, um, it was kind of a, a way of describing why the vaccination rate wasn't as high as people had hoped or wanted it to be in the fall of 2020 and going mm -hmm. into the winter of 2021 is that you know, there's these communities that are not as educated as they should be. And so we have that. And that became a sort of mode of speaking that I thought was really unfortunate because, you know, the data ultimately didn't bear that out. And I think now, if you look at it, African-Americans, why well, do you could tell me, but I think on the, on the whole, African-Americans are vaccinated at a higher rate, um, particularly in critical age groups uh, than white Americans are. But yeah, yeah I, 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 I don't know the data off the top of my head, but I, I think I suspect that you're right, that, you know, depending on what demographic group you're examining within African-American, there certainly would be, uh, you know, I would think some differences in vaccination status. Yeah. So let's let's turn to the third what a fascinating important set of findings uh, let's turn to the third one which is about race related concerns third hypothesis in this article about the syndemic race related concerns in covid and mental health correlation so is that about uh, people being concerned that they will be discriminated against in their actual treatment if they have covid well yeah that, that that's part of it um it's so we had two different um measures if you will of um COVID concerns. So there was one that was just the, the general anxieties and concerns about COVID that that all people would have, I think. And then we we created a, a, an additional measure that that was more specific around having having you know race related concerns or anxieties about COVID. Um, you know, related to you know of being concerned that people would you know black folks are already being discriminated against and if 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 i have COVID, that you know i'll be even more discriminated against because of at that time there was just so little known and understood about COVID, um and all the things all the things that sort of go along with that so we wanted to see if if race related concerns around COVID um specifically would be linked at all to to mental health and in fact um our suspicions were correct. We found that race-related concerns were significantly correlated with both um, um, having higher anxiety and depression. So just to take away from, from the article, and I assume there are others that are gonna come from this data set, but um, are, are you comfortable giving some advice to policymakers now? You said the Congressional Black Caucus was interested in, in this work yeah. at the outset. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we, you know, we had to do, you know, a number of, of, of presentations and, um, you know, I had to sort of present the findings in a way that, you know, was accessible, um, you know, to, to people. But, you know, I, for me, um, the one of the biggest takeaways, again, not to sort of belabor the point, um, is to not to not make assumptions 
about the reasons and motivations for vaccination status without having data to support it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the anecdote that I shared with you, you know, obviously was not part of the, the study, um, but I think it, it's important to kind of keep that in mind because even, even with the data that we have, um, culture, you know, there were certainly differences in mistrust bet uh, between the vaccination groups, but we only found that difference, and I, I don't want to get too statistical, but we only found that difference after we controlled for, um, you know, um, another variable, which was essentially uh, individuals who were first responders, not, not first responders, but um, individuals who who found themselves in positions where they had to sort of work regardless of, you know, mm. sort of what they, um, mm -hmm. you know, like, so, 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 so for someone like me, who's an educator, you know, we, we could sort of work from home. We didn't have to go into the office, but for individuals who uh, were not in those type of jobs, but who found themselves still having to, to go to work regardless, uh, we had to sort of control, for, control for that, um, that variable. And so once we control for that, then the differences in culture mistrust emerged um, across vaccination status. And so that's, I mean, that it, it may seem like a, a minor um, point, but it's, I think it's pretty significant because if we, if we had not controlled for that, we actually would not have found any differences in, in mistrust. Oh, just reminding folks, I'm talking to Dr. Kevin Coakley today uh, about this new work, the COVID-19 racial injustice syndemic and mental health among black Americans. And, um, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to make sure also turn. So you mentioned earlier that you've been very actively engaged in, in public scholarship at this time. Uh, and I think you were before the pandemic, but it sounds like it's turned up a notch, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the last couple of years. And, and one of the topics you've been writing about is, critical race theory and structural racism at, and how you teach it mm -hmm. uh, and how you approach it as an educator. You published a really nice op-ed piece in the Courier and Press earlier this year, and I'm just going to give a, a quote from this. You write, negative reactions to critical race theory have reached a fever pitch with news stories depicting emotional parents at heated forums decrying what they believe to be the ills of critical race theory. I live in South Korea now. Um, and I have been asked by a couple of colleagues, you know, about this, these episodes, you know, they follow American news very closely and it's a little, it's a little hard to explain why a country with a history like the United States suddenly wants to once again, whitewash its history and go after the teaching of African-American history and structural violence um, as if it's some, it should be a set of banned books and banned ideas that will bring down the state. But it's, as we were talking about earlier, it's, it's like a perpetual eruption. These, this is not the first time that these ideas and these, and some of these very same thinkers have been banned again and again. And so, I don't know, I find in those moments when I'm asked to sort of explain American, the history of American, you know, racism in education, I'm at a loss that I have to like try to come at this once again. So I can only imagine as an educator who specializes in this, how you must feel uh, and how you, and then how you channel that into more education, which is, it seems like what you've done. It's like, well, here we have to go again. Okay, here we go. And you write about it again. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you, how you react, what your reaction is. I don't care too much about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. I expect that behavior from them. But there are many millions of others out there who've never heard of critical race theory. And the first thing they've heard of it is, oh, this is some terrible thing which is going to destroy America. How do you meet that? Yeah, well, it's 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 funny, it's funny that you're asking me about it, because early, earlier today, before we, um, you know, I, I, we started the podcast, I attended a virtually attended a, a webinar um, called um, not in parentheses teaching critical race theory in K to 12 schools. And they had a panel of experts um, discussing this very issue. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the, the convener of the, the webinar showed a, a clip where he was, um, his name is Dr. Sean Harper at, at the University of Southern California. 
and he was a guest on a Dr. Dr. Phil show where he was essentially debating um, other, you know, individuals who were, you know, anti, you know, critical race theory. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, became very clear is that people don't know what critical race theory is. Number one, um, they start, they started to show off with a poll. How many of you, how many of you feel like you, could provide a definition and understand what critical race theory is. And the majority of people, you know, in the audience said they could not, which is not surprising. And that that's still the case now. So, so people don't really know what critical race theory is and what they end up doing is um, essentially labeling any discussion about race as critical race theory, right. uh, any discussion of race, any discussion of racism as critical race theory. And, and, and of course that is not the case. Um, but so, so that, so number one, so that's, that's a problem. And then the other sort of problem is this, 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 this narrative that, that our students in, in K through 12, that they are being taught critical race theory. Um, mm-hmm. there is no, there is no support, um, for that. I mean, Kid, as you, as I'm sure you know, critical race theory is a concept that's taught. It's not even taught very often in in undergraduates. It's t- it tends to be taught in graduate schools, um, you know, in law school, right. but certainly not something that's taught, you know, in K through twelve. And so, so you have those two patently false sort of statements, and yet there people continue to perpetuate them as as truths. So, so, so that's frustrating. But, but even beyond that. To me, what is most concerning and, and and just problematic is 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 that that people that you have some people out there who who don't want their white children to feel bad, who don't want their white children to to be exposed to the harsh history, the the, the really difficult history of this country, and the not just his history, the contemporary realities of different lived experiences amongst, you know, um, different groups of people. They don't want their white children to, to be exposed to this in a way that they feel like it's going to make them feel bad about themselves being white. And so, so for them, there was the answer. The, the answer is don't teach about that. Mm. And um, I just find that deeply problematic. So do you have a suggestion with just on the way, you know, closing up our discussion today, what, what's your advice uh, for educators who find themselves in the middle of all of this, who, you know, they're being told you're teaching, first of all, as you point out, they're being told you're teaching something that, first of all, they're not teaching, but, but even, but they still have responsibility as educators. Right. I'm sure students are asking them, what, what is yeah. this thing that everybody, all these adults are yelling about? Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, Scott, I mean, at, 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 we're at the point where this issue, you know, has become politicized. It is ideological. It is not rooted in actual facts and so I, I would like to say that you could have a reasoned conversation with someone um where you could sort of help sort of dial down the the hysteria and help them sort of see what it is and what it isn't but because it's been politicized and because it's it's ideological those conversations are very difficult to have and so people basically they've already drawn a line in the sand and and when they hear the words critical race theory, they already have an, an, an emotional sort of reaction to that term that I think, it, unfortunately, is very difficult to sort of penetrate through through logic and reason. I just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guests today, Professor Kevin Coakley. And be sure to check out this new article, The COVID-19 Racial Injustice Syndemic. And um, Kevin, congratulations on the work, and I hope we can get you back to talk more about it as the additional articles come about. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.